Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> Let's read verse 22. Brethren, let's hear the word of God. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves Enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn every one, night and day, with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of that precious word to our hearts this evening. Well, brethren, this is part four of our historical survey as we are uh, rapidly approaching uh, our uh, taking up the doctrinal exposition of the doctrine of grace. Now, in the passage we've just read, Paul spoke plainly to the elders of the Ephesian church. He made clear that he had faithfully delivered the whole counsel of God to them. That is, he had taught them the fullness of God's saving grace in Christ Jesus. And we can read his epistle to the Ephesians, and we can read his other epistles to the various other churches with whom he had to do, and we can get some very clear idea of what that glorious gospel of grace, that doctrine of grace that he taught the Lord's children. He said, My hands are clean. I have told each of you the truth, and I have preached God's grace. I have fully given you the glories of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Paul knew that in this truth alone were the unsearchable riches of Christ and the beauty of salvation. But he also knew that false teachers would rise up in the church and in the churches and draw men away from that sacred truth. Now that scenario has played itself out down through the generations of the church of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> and that's exactly why a historical introduction such as this uh, 
uh, can be helpful to our understanding. Uh, there is no doubt that always we should be being fed by and from the Word of God. But I think that there are times in our study of the Word of God, now that we have gone for 2,000 years, that it is helpful and useful to the Lord's people to look at various aspects of history so that we might understand how we fit in, so to speak, to the body of Christ uh, with uh, the extension of the book of Acts up until this day. We see church history beginning in the book of Acts, and brethren, we are part of it. Uh, Though the recording of it stopped uh, at the end of the book of Acts, we still see uh, a glorious history and the work of God throughout His people down through the ages. Now, brethren, I say all this because the apostolic gospel is the only truth that saves the soul. The apostolic gospel, Paul himself made this absolutely plain. If anyone comes to you and preaches any other gospel, if anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be cursed. And then he goes on to rebuke and to reprove the, the Galatians and says to them, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Who's, who moved you away from this glorious gospel of grace? Now, the enemy, of your, the enemy of our souls does all that he can to keep us confused regarding the precious saving grace of the Lord Jesus. And it is my, my point in saying that as Paul warned the Ephesian elders that this very gospel of grace, this doctrine of God's saving grace, was what he had preached to them, and that men would rise up behind him and do all they could to lead men astray from that truth. He warned them fervently for three years that this would happen. And as I unfold a survey like this before you, all I'm doing is adding meat (laughs) uh, to the skeleton that he's laid out here. This is what has been the case. And as we look down through the ages, we will see over and over again that men will rise up and they will draw men after themselves with other doctrines, moving away from God's saving grace. Now, we've looked at the early church and uh, the testimony of grace in the early church uh, as far as the scriptures go. And when we looked at the life of Paul, we looked at the early church fathers. We looked at the testimony of grace in the controversy between uh, Augustine and Pelagius last week. And this week, we're going to be covering centuries in... uh, a brief compass. So I'll do all that I can to make this intelligible, even though I'm compressing a tremendous amount of history into just a few moments. Now, we, we've we seen right here by our passage that the early church was, as Paul predicted, going to be, and as the Pauline epistles prove, 
was there, the church, churches were, attacked by men rising up from within and drawing men away after themselves with doctrines other than the gracious gospel that Paul preached and the attending truths with that glorious gospel. <clears throat> the early church was assailed with false doctrines and she spent the first four centuries of her existence battling primarily over the doctrines of the Trinity and the incarnation of Christ. Now, I don't mean to say that's all that they dealt with or talked about, but I am saying that this was the primary doctrinal concern. And uh, <clears throat> because of this and, and uh, numerous other factors, the early church fathers did not have a clearly developed theology of God's grace and its relation to the will of man. And, and as I have already shown you, uh, from their very quotes, you can go to some of the church fathers and on one hand uh, find them sounding like uh, modern day Arminians and then turn right around and find the same ones sounding like modern day Calvinists. So, <clears throat> there was not a clearly developed uh, theology, if I can say it that way, of, of these very important doctrines. But God used Augustine to defend and to help define the biblical doctrine of God's grace through his conflict with Pelagius. And uh, the Pelagian uh, conflict uh, and the writings that uh, Augustus uh, committed himself to at, the, at, at that time are still available. You can get them and read them, and it is amazing uh, <clears throat> to see how he goes to the scriptures, especially Paul, over and over and over and over again. Now please, listen with discernment. Hear me with discernment. When I raise a particular individual uh, here and, and, and talk about them, we're not here to exalt them as such, and we're not here <clears throat> to say that we agree with everything that they stand for. What, we're, what I'm attempting to point out is that throughout the history of the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, men appealed to the Scriptures to stand in this doctrine. Whether we agree with all of their theology or very little of it at this point isn't what I'm driving at. I'm saying that their appeal for the grace of the Gospel of Jesus Christ was Paul. The very one that said, there are men that are going to come. They're going to come in among the assembly and then they're going to take some of you out. My hands are clean, Paul said, because I've preached the grace of God to you. This is what Paul did. And this is what Augustine did. Augustine went over and over to all the scriptures, but especially to Paul. Now, out of the Augustine and Pelagius uh, controversy arose a movement that we call semi-Pelagianism. Now, there are those that would say it would be more accurate to call it semi-Augustinianism because it actually arose originally out of study of Augustine's works. But now listen carefully again, and you'll hear why I'm giving you this history framed within the scriptural context that I'm setting before us. <clears throat> Semi-Pelagianism appears to have been a reaction against Augustine's refutation of Pelagius. These were writings. They were circulated. Now, around uh, A.D. 426 or 27, 
North African monks uh, became concerned that Augustine's doctrine of predestination, listen carefully, undermined man's free will. They said, hey, you know, if we if we believe this, well, then we can't we can't look the same at this idea of of man having free will, which is of course is exactly the point. But these monks began to read, and as they studied uh, Augustine, who of course was taking them back over and over to Paul and to, and to others, they began to scratch their heads and say, "Well, you know, this this doctrine of predestination under man's, undermines man's free will, and therefore destroys monasticism." Of course, we'd be very happy to see that happen, but <clears throat> it would destroy monasticism, and it would destroy missionary activity. Now, you heard the dates on that, correct? And the same thing is still being said. This will kill missions. Now, John Cassian appears to have been the leader of this uh, particular movement, and he founded a monastery in southern France near Marseille, and he gave himself to working out Augustine's theology for daily living. Now, in time he became fearful that Augustine's view of grace led to loose living. Well, if you believe that you're saved by grace, well, you'll just live any way you want. Is that a new problem? Of course not. That's why there's Romans 6 in the Scripture. What? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But Cassian was, confused, uh, was concerned that Augustine's view of grace would lead to loose living, and he concluded that Augustine had gone too far. Now, men and women came to the monastery desiring to live the kind of lives that would prepare them for the grace of God and merit salvation for them. This is what was going on in the monasteries. You wanted to be a super fired-up Christian. You really wanted to be sure that you could get there. Well, you, you went into one of the monasteries. And this, these were the very heart of works religion. And this is why, when they began to read Augustine, they started going, well, this will kill the monastery. Yes! Because what were the people doing there? They were trying to merit their salvation. Remember how we began this study. There are two religions. God-centered and man-centered. God-centered religion, biblical faith, is God-centered, Christ-centered, all of grace. Man-centered religion, in one way or another, always revolves on man's works. Always. And the heart of a man-centered uh, religion inevitably comes back to the issue of man's will in the issue of salvation. Now, <clears throat> part of Cassian's job was encouraging these people that came into the monastery to uh, strive for holiness when they felt overcome by sin and temptation. You hear this? 
I'm down. I see my sinfulness. I see my wickedness. I'm struggling with temptations even though I'm away from civilization and I'm here in the monastery. I'm still finding out that I'm a wicked wretch. What do I do? Get more holy. Get more holy. Augustine said, No. Rest in the grace of Jesus Christ and the sovereign mercies of your God. Well, you can't run a monastery built on works-mongering, reading books about grace. You see, all of this, uh, all of Cassian's teachings was, uh, were pointless if Augustine's doctrine of grace was true. Now, obviously, grace, as understood by Augustine, destroyed the whole foundation of preparing for striving for meriting grace. And this is exactly what Rome was teaching. Cassian began arguing against Augustine in some areas while agreeing with him in others. Now he objected to what he believed were rigid views of predestination. The irresistibility of God's grace. I mean, if the hub of everything is man's will, we can't be talking about irresistible grace. And he believed that he had way too much of an emphasis on the eternal security of the believer. He believed that men were injured by the fall. This is what he came up with. Men are injured by the fall, not spiritually dead. Men's wills were enfeebled, they were weakened by sin, but not radically corrupted. Though he believed that grace was essential to salvation, he taught that man had to take the first steps toward faith by his free will. He had to be willing then grace was added to him. Have you ever heard a statement like this? God's done all He can do. Now the rest is up to you. If you'll just become willing, if you'll just make that decision, God will meet you down here at the end of the aisle. Now I'm not exaggerating. I've heard that. Perhaps some of you as, as well. If you take the first step, God will meet you. Brethren, that's medieval Roman Catholicism at its heart. Now, The leading idea then of semi-Pelagianism was that human will first and then divine grace work together in accomplishing the work of conversion. That is called synergism. Uh, It comes from the two words sin, which means with, and ergo, which means work, work with. Synergism means working together. I do my part, God does His part, I get saved. God's done all of this, now if I will just, if I will just exercise my will, 
then God will pour in His grace. A large portion of professing Christianity today that would turn white as a sheet at anyone having anything to do with Roman Catholicism doesn't realize that its primary tenet was being taught centuries ago in Rome. And to a great degree still is. It's just clothed in slightly different religious rags. Now, some of the things I say may raise a number of questions. And that will be good. We want to talk about these things. And we will see them more clearly laid out as we do our doctrinal exposition. But this is why we're looking through this historically. All right, let's look then at the grace in the period between Augustine and the Reformation. Augustine's early writings often emphasized the church as the only vehicle of God's grace to man. Augustine had and uh, taught uh, many doctrines that I believe were very serious error. Uh, and his later, more mature works emphasized the grace of God to depraved sinners. Now, the Church of Rome gradually moved away from Augustine's doctrine of salvation by grace and embraced the semi-Pelagian view. The semi-Pelagian view was originally condemned as heresy, but then Rome finally actually abandoned Augustine's view and adopted semi-Pelagianism. Now, Rome forged this together with Augustine's earlier doctrine of the church and erected a colossal religious machine who claimed herself to be the only dispenser of God's grace and who enslaved her members with a works righteousness system of merit. Pelagianism was, if you'll, if God will meet the sinner that does his best. Do your best. Come this way, and God will add grace to it. Now, we're the dispensers of grace, and you get them here in the sacraments. We have all of our sacraments here. And it became, brethren, a, a, a colossal religious empire of works righteousness. <clears throat> Centuries later, the Protestant reformers relied on Augustine's understanding of Paul's doctrine of grace to stand against the errors of Rome. So in one sense, this is one of the great ironies of history, Augustine was the father of the Reformation. On one hand, Rome's, rel- Rome's reliance on his earlier works regarding the church produced her declaration that no one could be saved outside of her. And yet, on the other hand, his later writings influenced the Reformers in their proclamation of the sovereign grace of God and the depravity of sinners. And what I'm saying to you is this. One man's writings ultimately produced a doctrinal head-on collision. It was, in one sense, it was Augustine against Augustine. Uh, and I would say his errors against his tr- what he understood of the truth. And brethren, the, the body of Christ is still feeling the impact of the Reformation. 
Rome declared itself to be the only, only way of salvation, and yet it was teaching a works-oriented salvation. It said it believed in salvation by grace, and it, it has always said that. But what it means by that is, as interpreted through their, uh, them as the dispensers of grace, and sinners doing what they, uh, taking the step uh, by grace and having God's grace added to them. Not the glorious doctrine of God's saving and sovereign grace. Now, as God's holy purpose unfolded in history, there were many other men, and I'm just hop skipping and jumping over. Uh, centuries here and uh, but there were men even within the church of Rome over and over would see the grace of God uh, very often because they would read Augustine and when they would read Augustine they would get Paul Augustine didn't come up with these doctrines he was standing in Paul's doctrine of grace against Pelagius <clears throat> there was a Benedictine monk by the name of Gottschalk of uh, Orbes he found rest and peace for his soul in the midst of this works-oriented thing in the Pauline doctrine of election. He fought for God's predestinating grace against the semi-Pelagians, uh, Rabinus and Hinkmar. And uh, you won't remember most of these names, I'm sure. Um, However, uh, as is often the case, they charged that Gottschalk's teaching made God the author of sin, and that Gottschalk then was uh, condemned, he was flogged and imprisoned for life. What originally had been the doctrine of Rome, and was the basis for condemning other doctrines as heresy, was now condemned as heresy itself. You read church history, brother, and it's astounding. The things that you see. Um, other names followed in this battle. Men like a Gregory of Rimini and Thomas Bradwardine and Anselm. Uh, maybe you've heard of some of these. Maybe you haven't. But the point is that in every generation, God was still raising up men inside Rome. Uh, and even, um, there seems to be some evidence that there were those outside at moments in various groups that saw these things. Now, a thousand years after Augustine had defended and uh, helped to define the grace of God, an Augustinian monk was to have an impact on history that is still being felt. Now, while walking back to Erfurt after a visit with his parents, a young law student named Martin Luther was overtaken by a violent thunderstorm and thrown to the ground by a bolt of lightning. Now, fearing for his life, he cried out to Saint Anne, the patron saint of sinners, excuse me, the patron saint of minors. His father had been a minor. And he said, Saint Anne, help me. I will become a monk. Now, several earlier events had provoked him to thinking about his spiritual condition, including the death of a friend, a very close friend, and this frightening episode seems to have uh, pushed him over the edge. Although his father was furious, Luther kept his vow. Luther was a man with an enormous conscience, and if he was going to do something, he gave himself wholly to it. Oh, he wanted the strictest monks out there. So, 
he became, uh, or he uh, made a vow and entered the, the strict order of the hermits of Augustine. They were rigorous in their study of the scriptures. Now, after entering the monastery, Luther sought for peace for his very, very troubled soul by every means available to him. And, in, and, and brethren, it's when God does these things with men in history, we want to sit and pay careful attention. Here was a man in the very bosom of works religion. A man with a big conscience. A man that was serious about being right with God. And he did everything that he could to be right with God. He prayed. He studied. He fasted. He used the sacraments. You ought to read any of the good biographies about him. His numerous confessions exasperated his confessors. He wore his confessors out. Every single thing he could think of, he told them. They'd even say, Brother Martin, go away. You know, come back when you've got some serious thing to confess here. But what are we seeing? The outworking of one of the two religions, man-centered. Rome became the Colossus of works righteousness. And here was a man doing all that he could to be right with God. He did everything, including uh, flagellating himself, sleepless nights. Uh, they found him once. They thought he was dead. He'd gone into a, a coma. Luther Superior and his spiritual advisor was a, a wise and learned man named Johann von Staupitz. Now, seeing Luther's great potential, he urged him to study for his doctorate in theology. Now, Luther learned Greek and Hebrew in the spirit of the Renaissance. This is, what is, this is just exactly what had taken place before the Reformation, the Renaissance. And the, and the cry of the Renaissance was ad fontes, back to the sources. And so there was an incredible upsurge in studying the Hebrew and the Greek text. Luther memorized most of the New Testament, at least according to some of his biographers, and large portions of the Old. Deeply troubled over his soul, he came to hate God's demand for perfect righteousness. He began to hate it. With all his partaking of the sacraments and the practices of the medieval church, he knew that he still fell short of God's requirement of perfect righteousness. He read the Scriptures... God kept speaking of righteousness and he knew that no matter how he strove, he couldn't reach that level. Finally, while he was wrestling with Romans 1.17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He realized that sinners were declared righteous by faith in Christ alone. He realized that the very heart of the gospel was uh, faith alone in Christ for our justification. The problem is, many people that love Luther because of justification either don't realize or don't want to talk about the fact that there was more to Martin Luther than simply the doctrine of justification by faith. He understood it in its overall context of the saving 
sovereign grace of God. That led him to a tremendous theological battle with Desiderius Erasmus. I speak with trembling as I have someone studying for his doctorate and studying Erasmus sitting back there. (laughs) I will make this brief and I trust accurate. Erasmus was born in Rotterdam, which is uh, in the Netherlands, and Erasmus was the illegitimate son of a Dutch priest. Uh, He became the leading humanist scholar of the Northern Renaissance. And uh, he was the first best-selling author, so to speak, in the history of printing, especially with his uh, satirical works, like The Praise of Folly. But while living in England, he was greatly influenced by John Collett and other scholars, And he applied his great learning to reform the corruption that he saw within the Roman Catholic Church. Now, conceiving of his own program of reform, Erasmus focused his genius and his massive abilities uh, on overturning the corruptions of the Roman Church uh, with one brilliant attack, Uh, or at least this is the primary one. He struck at the very foundation of the Roman Church by replacing the Latin Bible on which it was built with his critical edition of the Greek New Testament. This was a revolution. The Vulgate had been the, the, the Bible of, of uh, the church for a thousand years. And Erasmus overturned it. Why did he do something like that? Because a clear and accurate study of New Testament Greek showed a doctrine different than what was being propagated by Rome and that had been buried by its traditions. But Luther and Erasmus clashed. Erasmus supported Luther at the beginning, but then as Luther got more vehement and more violent in his uh, uh, attacks against Rome, Erasmus stepped back and he wrote a book on the freedom of the will. That was the heart of the issue. This is where he went after Luther. And Luther replied in a work called The Bondage of the Will. The Bondage of the Will. And brethren, if you read Luther, though we remember him for justification by faith alone in Christ, he declared that the most important thing he wrote was the bondage of the will. Because he understood the doctrine of God's grace. Having been an Augustinian, he was a Pauline theologian. Well, let me press on a little more quickly so that I may get to the end here for this evening. Let me broach then a little later John Calvin. There was grace in the controversy between what we call Calvinism and Arminianism. Surprisingly little is known about Calvin's conversion, but there's some evidence that he came into contact with Protestantism during uh, his studies in law. Now, his own words were that he experienced a sudden conversion and became a Protestant Christian. Fixing his heart on the cause of the Reformation, he fled from Paris to Basel, Switzerland, uh, because of the growing persecution of Protestants. Now, when King Francis I of France issued a public letter charging French Protestantism with uh, anarchistic aims which no government could bear. 
uh, which means these reformers are, are anarchists, so they must be annihilated. <clears throat> Calvin responded with a seven-chapter treatise, which was both a defense of Protestantism and a confession of the faith. And he entitled that defense of the faith, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Now, Calvin was not uh, uh, trying to come up with a new religion. This was not the point. Once again, Calvin had one thing burning in his heart, and you can tell that if you will read the Institutes. Whether you agree with everything in it or not, read what he says and you will see him going to the Scripture page after page after page after page. Brethren, <clears throat> what he was doing was setting forth that what, what the Protestants were holding forth was not new, it was not novel, but a return to what had always been taught within the church. Remember, the early reformers were exactly that, reformers. They didn't want to leave the Roman body at the beginning because this is what was called Christianity. You have to try to get into the mindset. You've got to read some history to do that. But brethren, when you stand outside of the only gigantic organization that's called itself Christianity for a thousand years, and you say, you don't have it, and they say to you, then what is it? You've got to do some writing. You've got to put some doctrine before them. They scoured the scriptures. And when they quoted the early church fathers and Augustine and these others, it wasn't because they were looking to them as authorities. They were saying that within the very bosom of Rome, there's always been people that have known and understood the grace of God. The grace of God. Brethren, listen to this quote from the, the Institutes, and I will close after this this evening, Ellen didn't get as far as I wanted to, but listen carefully. <clears throat> Calvin says, We shall never feel persuaded, as we ought, that our salvation flows from the free mercy of God as its fountainhead until we are made acquainted with His eternal election. The grace of God being illustrated by the contrast that is, that he does not adopt all promiscuously to the hope of salvation, but gives to some what he denies to others. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, you'll never really be able to rest in salvation until you understand that it flows from the mercy and the grace of God. And when you look at eternal election, you realize, he could have left me out. It doesn't make you say, when you understand this, it doesn't make you say, well, I'm saved because I know what I did. It drops you to the ground and it makes you say, why was I made a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? While thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Calvin 
says, It is plain how greatly ignorance of this principle detracts from the glory of God and impairs true humility. What's he saying? When you don't see God's grace, then you don't glorify God as you ought and you are not humble as you ought to be. But though thus necessary to be known, Paul declares that it cannot be known unless God, throwing works entirely out of view, elect those whom He has predestined. Where did He get those words? He didn't get them from Augustine. He agreed with Augustine regarding what Paul said. Read the first chapter of Ephesians. Having, pre- been, having been predestinated by His grace, chosen by the Father unto salvation. His words, speaking of Paul, are, even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. Romans eleven six. If to make it appear that our salvation flows entirely from the good mercy of God, we must be carried back to the origin of election, then those who would extinguish it wickedly do as much as in them lies to obscure what they ought most loudly to extol and pluck of humility by the very roots. Do you hear that? Don't get lost in that. The eloquence of what he's saying, hear his heart. He said the men that are attacking the, the doctrine of election are attacking what they ought to be rejoicing in. That finally dawned on me a few years ago after the, the umpteenth argument on the, the doctrine of election with someone. I sat there thinking, Paul didn't begin Ephesians as a polemical argument. He began it exploding in praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every uh, spiritual blessing in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy before Him in love. Brethren, properly understood, election, predestination of the doctrines that bring us to bow before our God and to give Him all the glory and all the praise and all the honor. And they exalt Him and it humbles us. I will stop there this evening as I intended to uh, go no more than 45 minutes so that we can go to our time of prayer. But I say this, dear brethren, We will conclude that portion of our studies next week and then begin our doctrinal exposition. Grace, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. It is a Pauline doctrine. It is an eminently biblical doctrine. It is not something new. It is not something strange. It is not something that was thought up in the Reformation. 
It's something that has been being struggled over at varying degrees and expressed in, in differing degrees of accuracy from the very time that Paul stood before the Ephesian elders and said, I commend you now to the grace of God which is able to build you up. May we rejoice in the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.